0: Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm really glad you could join me, as this week we're going to get a chance to speak with Melanie Mark Shadbolt about Te Tira Fakamātaki. And this is a great conversation, because we talk about her childhood, her background, some time in Oman, as well as the initiatives that she's involved in today. But we also dive into colonialism, systemic change, Te Ao Māori, and a lot of other interesting topics. It's one of those ones that I know you regular listeners enjoy because we jump all over the place and have a really interesting conversation. If you enjoy this, then why not hit subscribe and also check out some of the other interviews in the back catalog because this is episode 277. And there's heaps more information at theseeds.nz. The aim of Seeds is to catalog some stories of inspiring peoples and understand their lives in detail so that we can work out why they do what they do today. Now let's get straight into this interview with Melanie. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Melanie Mark Shadbolt from Teteer Vakamataki. Thank you for joining me. Kilda. Um, it's great to have you on the show because I know you're involved in a lot of different things, including seeds, um, and the show is called Seeds. So I, I'd love to find out more about that idea of banking seeds and you know keeping them um, preserved for the future. Um, but before we talk about that, I'd love to go back in time and um, yeah, and love to hear from you a little bit about where you're from.
1: Kia ora, nga mihi nui ki a kui, he uria o Ngāti Parau, rātou ko Ngāti Kahanuni, ki Wairarapa, ko Te Ati Awa, ko Te Aroa, ko Ngāti hoki, ko Mel So I come from a whole bunch of tribes in the north, um, predominantly on the east coast, so from Wellington up um, to Ngāti pro and inland uh, into the Tiaroa lakes. Um, I was born in Wai'uru, uh, which makes yeah. me an army brat, because there's not much else there. Mm-hmm. Uh, which also means that I moved a lot as a child, so every couple of years we moved around. I think I've lived at every army base there is, so from Linton to Trenton, um, and lots of time at Burnham Military Camp. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents met at Burnham, my mum was the daughter of the local policeman. Uh, my father mm. was in the army. Uh, and so, yes, yeah, so I've spent a lot of time in Christchurch, grew up um, pretty much most of my life in Christchurch, back and forth, um, a boy stint in the Middle East with my father when he worked offshore in the hmm. military, and then, yeah, back to Christchurch to settle, which is predominantly where my mother's family are from.
0: Right. So, yeah. And what's that like then, you know, moving around? what was it every two or three years, hmm. or was it longer, or, yeah, how, how does that, Did you feel displaced, or is it just you get used to that rhythm? Yeah, I think
1: you get used to the rhythm. Well, I certainly did. I know not everyone does, but um, when you're doing it in the military, you often bump into the same people and the same family. So you may not see them for a couple of years and end up in the same place again, you know, four years later. So Mm -hmm. you do get a bit of a rhythm and you get used to making friends and. you know, getting back in touch with old friends again. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think you get itchy feet, though, as you get older. Yeah, when you start to settle yourself, yeah, are constantly looking for the next move and what else can I do? Right. Yeah.
0: So do you feel it subconsciously like every couple? Of course I do. (laughs) (laughs) And I
1: can't do it in housing now, but I can do it certainly in work or and projects and yeah I certainly do still have a bit of a gypsy mentality you know
0: yeah yeah it's interesting isn't it when you think like what is it that shapes our lives yeah. and and how do we make decisions because I know for me I'm in some ways I'm similar to you didn't grow up in, with the army side of things but my parents moved us every couple of years mm-hmm. so I grew up a bit of time in New Zealand then a bit of time in California then in Chile back to New Zealand back to California and and then as I've continued as an adult Every couple of years, there usually is something that changes. Yeah. And I wonder, yeah, there must be those rhythms of, oh, must be time for something new.
2: Yeah,
1: that cadence that your life gets into, I suppose, yeah.
0: Yeah. Constantly
1: yeah. keeping your mind busy, I think.
0: Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned the Middle East. Um, what age were you when you moved there?
1: I always tell people I was mar- marriageable age, so I was 11. Right. <laughs> yeah. so, and,
0: yeah. and which part of Middle East did you In go In Oman. Oh, so, yeah. okay. I don't know... Very. Oh, I know very little about Oman. Can you yeah. tell me about it?
1: So, um, I guess maybe in the 80s, I can't quite remember. Um, sultan Qaboos overthrew his father, who was the, who had been the sultan for a very long time. He had uh, been educated in um, the UK and struck a deal with the British military to go back. I assume is what happened and overthrow his father. Mm. Uh, and bring the country kind of out of what would have been considered third world status. That was his aim. Uh, and he went back to the um, Oman and bought in a program of modernization, which he called the Omanization. Huh. Uh, and he effectively wanted to get the country up to, you know, first world status um, and to do that with the support of Westerners, um, but with the intention of Westerners then leaving, uh, having educated and brought up Omani people to run their own country and their own systems Uh and so people like my father were sought out and brought in to help build military uh, to train Omanis and and then to leave and exit so Hmm. dad was there for quite some time and uh, mum went back and forth and we went over for a big stint and then went back and forth again Hmm. Um, but yeah it was certainly an interesting time in our lives and it, it was a interesting time in Oman's history as well as they were the north was moving progressing and modernizing quite fast the south where we were was still very um third world it's not far from the border of Yemen and we're on the other border of Saudi Arabia so Hmm.
0: yeah wow so So 11 years old like I'm just thinking when I was 11 I have pretty vivid memories so it must have been the same for you yeah at that at that age do you remember that sort of arriving and like the culture shock of this is very different, or yeah. yeah,
1: I guess um you know you'll know if you've moved around a lot, you're used to a bit of culture shock even mm. in small town New Zealand. um you kind of get used to adjusting fairly quickly. I don't rem- I remember um, excitement and awe um, about being somewhere really different, um, and it was very, very different, as I say, it was mm. still very um, third world. Um, I remember the shock of seeing kind of real poverty for the first time and and what would have been slums, effectively. Right. Um, I remember some of the culture shock around things that, you know, are normal to us and uh, are completely abnormal to uh, Arabs. Um, Mm. Yeah, but I remember more than anything, it was probably one of the first experiences, not the first experience where I realised I was quite different to... guess the rest of my family my mother's blonde and blue-eyed my brothers are blonde and blue-eyed my father's very obviously maori Um, and I'm dark and Mm. so I remember my mum a blonde woman being treated very differently to me a dark-haired girl so I think that was probably what stood out the most when I first arrived
0: yeah yeah that's interesting and were there other were you in like a western part of the place you were living or was it or was it kind of immersed in the The society.
1: My father, um, because of the way he looks, has always. integrated. I mean, Māori look very similar to South Americans. We look very similar to Arabs, um, to Indians and Pakistanis. There's similar features. Uh, my dad's always blended in really well. So I don't think he cottoned on to the fact that he blended in much more even than the British soldiers did or British officers did. Right. Uh, so he wanted us to integrate and be part of society. So we were in a housing complex with um, three other you know, European families or, I guess, Western families. Mm. Um, But we were right in the middle of the slums, effectively. So he didn't quite cordon us off like some of the other um, expat families did. He wanted us to to live and breathe the Middle East.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. And in terms of school, what were you doing? Was it correspondence? I was doing
1: both, and I don't know why my parents did it to me. So I was doing um, the New Zealand Correspondence School. Uh And I was going to the British... um, Speaking school as well, which only had about forty students, but yeah, yeah, so there was a bit of pressure to try and do both, and I wasn't very good at doing correspondence, so right, yeah, yeah. so you had <laughs> to
0: finish the school, come home, and then do in school. theory, come home, and do, <laughs> yeah, and do school, yeah, oh, yeah. well, that's amazing. Yeah. So, how long did you end up staying in Oman for?
1: So, um, over it in a one slot, it was the just over twelve months, I think. Okay, um, and then we came back and did some months of high school. Well, I came back and did some months of intermediate here, mm-hmm. which it would have been, and then we went back again. Um, for a while and then yeah came back again so it was a back and forth for a wee bit
0: yeah Yeah. what do you think that's done for your identity you know looking back because that's quite an impressionable young age to go to a different very different place yeah any thoughts about that
1: oh what has it done I guess it's made me open-minded about other cultures Um, it makes you look at The world through other lenses um, Mm -hmm. to think about how other people see and interpret the world around them. Mm. Um, I think it makes you more compassionate. Um, Yeah, Mm. I don't know. It's. I mean, I think it's a great experience, and um, certainly would have loved to have done something similar with my children. Mm. I think it makes you more worldly very quickly. Mm. Um, But yeah, I'm not uh, under any illusion that I probably wasn't sheltered there as well, Mm. um, given that we were, you know, foreigners. Uh, in a country that just undergone a coup, effectively. Mm. So, yeah, but,
0: yeah. Yeah, fascinating little <laughs> snippet. I didn't expect that <laughs> to be talking about Oman. When I was, um, I think I'd just turned 12 or so, around similar age, actually, we moved to Chile, yeah. and we were living, like, in a tiny little village, and I remember that there were poor people on the street who would come and knock at our door, and it it, they, it was a next level of... People who were poor, you yeah. know, the they were living in the street. There was, they had nothing, yeah. and that the contrast, having been in America, yeah. and then living in this this place where poverty was literally looking at you through your window, um, I think it affected me a lot more than I realize. Mm. You know, in terms of how I look at the world, definitely. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And for me, it was things. I mean, certainly that as well. I remember. I mean, as I said, the slums were behind us uh and I remember the ice cream truck kind of, you know, the, the van with that makes the noise that we have here, mm-hmm. um coming around and my brother and I are going, Oh, you know, sounds like a Mr. Whippy, but it's actually a, a meta, you know, a vaccine van going around because disease is rampant in the slums and so they're coming around doing TB, um, you know, and and the other things, polio and right. and jabs. And so, you know, thinking, gosh, that's weird, you know, we'd go to the doctors for that. But I also remember the fascination of um, the locals, of us as well, and having to learn to accept curiosity about your culture as well. Mm. Uh, We had, as I said, we lived in a complex with four other families and the house next to us was um, locals and their roof looked into our windows and so they would quite often just stand on their roof and look in the window and watch how we lived. Um, We'd try and talk and communicate with them and they'd ask questions like, why are you cooking like that? Or what are you doing with a jug? Like, what's that? And So just that kind of curiosity I found quite fascinating about yeah, trying to understand how other societies live and what's yeah. normal to them.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. So you end up back in New Zealand yeah. and um, take us through sort of your teenage years, like in high school. Were there subjects that interested you or, yeah, what type of a person were you at that point?
1: Yeah, gosh, what kind of person was I? <laughs> um, I've always been a family person. That's, uh, you know, both my parents are. Uh, uh, family orientated. We came back to Christchurch when my dad stayed in the Middle East, so that we could be my, by my mum's family. Uh, so lots of cousins. Four of us were all born in the same year, four girls, um, and we were all sent to high school together, in part to look after each other. Right. So I think I'm so like, like sisters. Huh? <laughs> yeah. So I think they would say that I'm probably quite bossy. Um, certainly, you know. Um, wanted to keep everyone in line and make sure they were all looked after. Mm-hmm. Uh, what interested me, I was um, interested in Māori straight away, Te Reo Māori. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of the subjects that wasn't offered when I first started at school, other than the you know the token kind of six-week package. Sure. Um, and one that a number of students fought for to be taught. Uh, I think the first year it was offered at our high school was the year I entered into third form or. Um, mm. whatever it is now. Year yeah. Nine. Year nine, yeah. Yeah. And so I took, you know, to Maori mm. and was immediately kind of like, This is my thing, this is what I like. Um, and yeah. what had
0: what had sparked that for you? Was it from your father? Yeah. Had it been passed on or, or, yeah?
1: I'm a wee bit naughty in that if someone tells me I can't do something, it means I want to do it even more. Mm -hmm. Uh, So my father was part of what I call the New Zealand Stolen Generation. He was part of the um, children that were taken from their families under the guise of, you know, SIFs removing kids for... For their safety, um, we would. I would argue that some of that was, you know, a bit rubbish, and it wasn't actually for those reasons. Mm. So he was fostered out. Uh, he was fostered into a series of Māori families where he didn't necessarily have great experiences, uh, and then he spent the substantive time in non-Māori families or in Pākehā families, mm-hmm. and those had varying experiences. Um but I suspect, and he probably wouldn't say this openly, but I suspect um that at least in those houses he had food, um, a bed, and clothing, and so in his mind, that was a better life than what he would have had in a in a Maori home at the time, mm. um where there were other issues and I think and and i don't think I know that that really shaped his view of the Maori world. Um, he didn't know a lot of his siblings They'd all been fostered out as well He, A handful of them um, He had irregular interactions with his father um, And he never saw his mother uh, from the moment he was you know, mm. taken uh, And he had one experience with her later on in his early military life That wasn't positive And that shaped his view of the Maori world um, what he saw in his wider family was drugs, alcohol, dysfunction. And so he was very anti-things Māori. He was of that generation that thought, you know, his children should learn uh, te Pakia, Pākehā, the, you know, um, the tools of the Pākehā, that we should get that kind of education, we should focus on Pākehā careers, and that te reo Māori was kind of pointless. Right. So he wasn't... He didn't say I couldn't do it, hmm. um, but he wasn't necessarily very supportive of it. Hmm. Um, and so, of course, in my mindset, that means I have to do it. Right. Yeah, so <laughs> in part I'm going to rebel yeah. and I'm going to study yeah, hard. Yeah, I'm going to do this. <laughs> um, but I also really liked the mud, you know, like um, the Pacifica community as well. So yeah. I remember I started school later than everyone else because I was in the Middle East and we came back late.
2: Mm.
1: Um, so pe- people already had their cohorts and their cliques, and I didn't have one. Um, and I joined the cultural group straight away and was welcomed in uh, as Pacifica and Maori do, mm. um, and so I found a kind of a bit of a niche and a bit of a home. Mm. And I think that that's what also helped me stick with Tidal because that was also my crew.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. It's a, it. It actually comes up on the podcast relatively frequently yeah. when I'm talking with people because I've talked with a number of people who've gone similar similar story, I guess. And then for some of them. Um, I spoke with um, Jay Matenga, who I don't know if you know him yet, but he only found out in his early 40s that he had some connections mm. and through his whakapapa. And so now he's starting on this journey of learning mm. Um But I, yeah, it's kind of this, as you say, sort of a stolen generation where it was, yeah. you know. Put aside and definitely, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So, so you started at that point. So, Tadeo became a big part of your life. It sounds like definitely from yeah. that point on.
1: Yeah, Tadeo yeah. and um, Kapahaka and you know things in the Maori world. I mean, I always knew I was Maori. My father's very obviously Maori. I'm mm. still connected to a large chunk of our Maori family. Mm. Um, have and, you? Yeah. Have
0: you? I'm just curious. And you know, you talked about your father's, you know, dealings and. and and history. Have you been able to go back and and find, you know, connections and maybe aunts or uncles or things like that? Yeah, or definitely. Yeah, yeah how, how has that, that been in terms of your your relationships? Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: um, good. I mean, there are some tribes where we have less understanding of our of our papa and our connections and. Mm. Um, you know, who, who we relate to. We often find them randomly. I mean, I've worked in the Māori space forever, mm. uh, so quite often find them that way through work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are other areas where we're really sure and certain. So Dad was fostered into the area where we Papa from, into okay. Kahanunuki, Wararapa. Um So we still have connections. Dad's now living back there and reconnected himself and has been a treaty negotiator. So uh, so we have strong links into some areas mm. more so than others. But, yeah, yeah you certainly get to make new connections all the time but again that is as you say part of the issue of not only the stolen generations but of colonization because the Mm. whole purpose of colonization is to break those those um connections yeah
0: yeah yeah it's an amazing topic we could talk on that for hours i'm sure (laughs) because i'm i'm really curious about it because for me as someone who's moved around a lot in my life and you know i've lived in six different countries and so i've seen um that You can chase after certain things in life, you know, like careers and money and and promotions, and you end up in Tokyo or you end up in New York or whatever. But actually, the money in your bank account can't replace the connections and relationships of actually being in a place where you get to know people and you have that long-term relationships. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing I really love now that I've learned more about Tao Maori and the idea of whakapapa, you know, that you're tracing back through time and that those people are there and you're here representing all those people who've come before you, which I think in Western conception of individual, like I achieved this, I did that, look at me, it's, it it doesn't resonate the same way as mm. being more like you're here in a way as a representative of so many before you.
1: Yeah, and I think it connected to me, I mean, growing up in the military, it is about whānau, the military mm. is about community and groups, uh, and it is very Māori, the New Zealand military, and right. so with even if you don't understand your papa or know too much, you know very much about Tian Maori, the culture of the military very much resonates with people, especially Maori, and so they gravitate to that kind of lifestyle. Mm. And so I grew up in that where everything is about Farno and all the neighbour kids are in one house and you know there are lots of parties and um, lots of family events mm. uh, and the military looks after families. And then I went to the Middle East where you know the Bedouin community and Arabs are very similar. It's about community, about belonging to groups. There's intergenerational living Mm. Um, families are very very big Um, and then I came back to New Zealand and was very much in a you know I was in a Catholic girls school where it was very white very Mm. Pakia, and that wasn't very strong it was like you say about individual effort individual achievement and that didn't resonate with me Um, still doesn't resonate with me I still don't really understand that Mm. Um, and so I guess yeah as I say I was looking for Where's this kind of Fanongananga that I'm used of, even mm. if I don't understand the terms and the concepts, mm-hmm. I I know what I'm looking for, and so yeah, very much like you, my everything I do is really about belonging and connecting. Mm.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think it's so important, and it's also hopefully the people listening realize these are these are things that we can strive for in our life. Like, it doesn't just happen. Sometimes you actually have to make the effort to to make those connections with people and have the long-term relationships and welcome them into your home and, and break bread together. You know, it's, there's a lot of active parts of this. So yeah. Yeah. So you're getting to the end of your high school years. Did you know what you would do next was, was work what you wanted to do or study or yeah.
1: Yeah. I'd always worked. I think I had my first paid job when I was 11. So I had work on and off all through high school. Mm -hmm. Um, so I liked work, um, I liked the company and you know independence that it gave me. Um, I wanted, I had this naive view that I wanted to go into film, I probably wasn't naive, but I just had this great idea that I wanted to go into film and television. I looked at it, but in those days film and television wasn't a mainstream study option, it was something you had to... Um, pay for yourself and my family wasn't wealthy Um, you know they were living paycheck to paycheck so Mm -hmm. that wasn't a viable option for me and I was also of that generation where as I said my father thought the only way for for Māori to get ahead was to uh, get an education in the Pākehā system Mm -hmm. no one uh, in my dad's family had ever been to university my dad was the first one um, to get a kind of tertiary qualification as a mechanic. Uh, and he'd had to go back and do that in his mid-twenties with a family, and he you know, always talked about how hard that was. So I was, like many Māori of my age, I was literally dropped off at university. Uh, most of the Māori liaison officers in those days were ex-military, so it was a military dad dropping me off at a military office, effectively. Mm. Uh, and he enrolled me, and enrolled me in the subjects that he thought were Um, Important, which in those days for most Māori was law. So I was enrolled in law and accounting. Ah. uh, And I went to Canterbury University and I absolutely hated it uh, and didn't do so well in my first year because I kept sneaking off and doing other things uh, and eventually switched into politics um, back into te reo Māori, uh, into things like classics and Antarctic studies and did a whole multitude of papers and, and finished up with my Bachelor of Arts in political science and... Uh, te Reo Māori, or Ranga Māori, as they said at the time, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, and then went looking for work, so.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so that was here at Canterbury? At Canterbury, it? yeah. So what years are we talking about? Oh that?
1: gosh, I graduated in, when did I go? I went in 96.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's amazing. Life, I I love that about life, like just the weaving together of things because we definitely would have walked by each other (laughs) or seen each other (laughs) because I was studying law from 1995 to 2000. Okay. But I also did um, history, sociology. I remember doing the Antarctic Studies course, which was like six points, (laughs) I think. You know, it was like, it was was really fun. Um, And then, yeah, similar sort of, Areas. And then I did a um, BA in political science, awesome. so graduated in 2000. So there you go. Probably we're in a class at some point. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> wow,
1: well, I, I always say to people, I had such a great time at university. I left with two children, so right. Yeah, I would have been the pregnant one up front. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. that's cool. So you get to the end of that stage of your life. Yeah. yeah. Did you know what you wanted to get into? It sounds like the, the Teo Māori, it, it despite your father's intention, <laughs> it had come back in because that's what you were studying as well, yeah. so, yeah.
1: Yeah, um, and it, yeah, it had, I suppose. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I guess, like I say, I also left with two children, mm-hmm. uh, so I was a young mum and uh, tr- probably just looking for opportunities, but I ended up working for Who That was my first job out of university, and... Um, doing multiple things as Ngai who. So they weren't long out of their settlement uh, and they were hiring people. You'd go in the office as an administrator or as a uh, something and you'd end up wherever they put you and got to try lots of different things. So I was with Ngai for seven years. Oh, okay. Uh, did a number of different things, but most of the time, about five years, I was with their education entity, Te Tapua who at the time, okay. uh, running, uh, I guess, outreach programs for High school kids trying to get them into university, mm-hmm. uh, support programs for uh, rangatahi at university, scholarship programs yeah, lots of different things and yeah between Waitaha and universities mostly.
0: Yeah, oh that's yeah. fascinating. So did you see if you were you started with them sort of around the settlement time? Did you yeah? You must have seen quite a bit of change over that seven years.
1: Yeah, definitely. So you. I guess the the first observation I had, because I was fairly young, um, there were a lot of young Māori in the organisation at the time, Uh, one of the early observations that many of us made was that when we would engage with other iwi, they were very much still in grievance mode, Mm. and so there was very much this kind of fight mentality still, and this activist mentality, and we had the luxury in Ngāi Tahu of not having to do that. We certainly still had to fight for uh, Ngāi Tahu's rights, um, but it wasn't the same. We had the ability to move and make decisions, and obviously had resourcing mm. to do that. So it was a bit more of a positive energy. It was quite a I thought, a really exciting time to mm. be in the tribe where people were excited, and there was energy uh, to get things moving for Ngaitahu uh, people, for their students to get them into education, uh, you know to lift them out of poverty and the like. So mm-hmm. it was a really exciting time to be there, I think.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Yeah. So it must have been interesting, like you say, because I can imagine an organization, which is kind of new energy and beginning and you probably could sort of jump from role to role and help out over here and dupe it over there as well
1: definitely you got to sample a lot of different things and see what you wanted to do yeah. I think when I first started I was quite excited by the idea of comms and public relations mm-hmm. and went to work in that team for a while and awesome team and great people who I still keep in touch with uh, but realized very quickly that I wasn't cut out for PR because I've got a mouth and it opens and things that inappropriate things come out so yeah, it probably wasn't going to be the best place for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd obviously not long out of university myself, and I was really excited by the opportunity to work with others who were trying to get into university and find their place.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and so, yeah, you could quite easily say, I want to give that a go now. I want to try on the education team.
0: Yeah, that's great. So, yeah, I'd love to turn the conversation a bit more to what you're doing today. So yeah. just talk us through the steps from, from that point yeah. and, and that role, and then, yeah, what happened next, yeah. and then, yeah.
1: You know, we'll get to where we are. We'll get to where we are, yeah. are today. <laughs> yeah, well, so the Taita and Ngaitahu Education subsidiary was a really unique model at the time. Mm-hmm. It was a company uh, between with shares held between Ngaitahu, uh, the three universities in the South Island—Lincoln, Canterbury, Otago—and two of the polytechs, which was Christchurch Polytech at the time, now Ara, and Otago Polytech. And so the company was a joint venture between all of them, where they were all committed to lifting, um, obviously Ngaitahu. Um, Mm. education levels and getting more naitahu or Māori in general in the South Island into tertiary education, yeah. but also embedding naitahu tanga into those organisations and helping them be better treaty partners. Mm. And so it was a really uh, unique model at the time and a great opportunity to work with the universities and polytechs to see how they could be better um, and more responsive to Ngaitahu, mm. and because of my role there for five years, I was working with organisations like Lincoln University, and one of the jobs that came up, um, you know, that I had to take care of with Lincoln University was helping a new centre there, a new research centre, stand up its Māori program in particular, how they were going to build Māori capability, which mm. was one of the mandates that the government had given them with their funding, uh, and that was the Bioprotection uh, Research Centre. It mm. was called. Uh, and I ended up moving over. So I ended up leaving Naitahu and going to the bioprotection centre to help roll out their Māori programme. Hmm. And that was my step into, I guess, academia and into the universities. I quite often tell people that on the Naitahu side it was it felt like we were bashing our head against a brick wall trying to get tertiary organisations to pick up our programs and to and to be more treaty compliant and I think I naively at the time thought well I'll go on the other side and I'll do it from there right (laughs) and I got into the organization and realized really quickly that oh now I see why they were struggling to implement Mm. you know their treaty responsibilities because these are big old institutions Mm -hmm. and they're really hard to move the systems are embedded yeah Um, people are indoctrinated and they just don't want to change, they don't want to move. So I went into Lincoln, you know, an old institution, um, predominantly white, um, large chunks of internationals and treaty obligations were certainly not front of mind. Mm. Uh, that doesn't mean they didn't have good relationships with Ngāi Tahu and good relationships with their local mana whenua, it just meant that it, it wasn't a huge priority. Mm. So I spent 11 years at Lincoln, uh, being a researcher, Um trying to roll out Māori capability programmes, doing Māori research, and they were good and bad. Uh, they were good years uh, mm-hmm. in that I got to learn new skills. I got to do more study, uh, study a um, postgraduate in social science space and do some really exciting research, predominantly in the kind of disaster space, because we'd had an earthquake in Christchurch as well in that mm-hmm. time,
0: yeah. uh,
1: and got to do research in that space. So I had some great times, but I also had some really frustrating times that were quite hard and I um, was quite disillusioned with the ebb and flow of universities where they seem to do really well for Māori and lots of Māori academics turn up uh, and get roles and build momentum and then you know the ebb is in many of the universities where something changes in the system, people start pushing back, lots of Māori exit, numbers drop off again, students are unsafe, and all of a sudden you feel like you're starting again. So the right. ebbs and flows in the universities, which are still happening today, mm. I guess eventually kind of wore me out. And in the end I was like, yeah, I've had enough. And mm. um, and towards the end of 20, I think it was 18, I exited the university. Mm-hmm. Um, but fortunately for for my colleagues and I, a number of us, Uh, probably a couple of years before that we had established a research program looking at Māori biosecurity needs and we were working in the biosecurity space Mm -hmm. uh, quite significantly. We had been working on a pest uh, disease that we knew was likely to arrive in New Zealand and we'd been building the knowledge of our communities around that disease, around myrtle rust in particular and we'd been preparing them for it and when it hit our shores in 2017, our communities were able to mobilise really quickly to try and respond. And that led to the establishment of what we called the Māori Biosecurity Network at that time. Right. And it was a research project. But when I left Lincoln University, we stood that up as Te Tira Whakamātaki mm. and turned it into the Māori Environmental Not-for-Profit, that mm-hmm. you know of, you yes. supported us with. Yeah. Uh, and that was where I planned to move to. I planned to leave the university and devote all my time to Tatete Um, but as uh, as happens people hear that you're on the market and you're around and yeah and then I end up picking up other roles as you would know in, yeah, yeah. in research space and then in the government space as well
0: yeah oh that's so, yeah. fascinating it's always I just love these sorts of hearing downloads of people's careers and and because you know sometimes particularly for young people listening it might feel like oh there's a career path you know you do this and then you do this. And it's always laid out for you. But I mean, just uh, you're another good example of someone who started here and then jumped over here and then did this. And I think that's actually the way life is. So um, it's encouraging to hear that. And so I think our paths would have crossed. What year would that have been now? 2019, was it that you were working on Tatira Fakamathaki? Yes. Yeah. 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 Because I remember when you came in at the first time we were talking about what you had planned and I remember thinking, wow, this is it's gonna be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, you've ended up with the talking through legal structures and like company and trust and all these different things that we went through. So that's right. yeah, that's yeah. great. So what should we do? Should we talk a little bit about Titirafaka Mataki maybe? Is yeah. that is that okay? Can we, so. can you tell us a bit more about it and yeah, you know, what what sort of things is it involved in today?
1: Definitely. We started off, as I said, as the Māori Biosecurity Network, and that was in large part because there were only a handful of Māori who were working in the academic biosecurity space. Mm -hmm. Uh, Certainly plenty of Māori working on the ground as practitioners in the biosecurity space, even if they didn't realise that's what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there were only a handful of us working academically in the research space, and I guess we were feeling overwhelmed with the amount of work that was coming our way from government and industry Mm. uh, in our own communities as well, wanting advice and support. Mm. And we thought at the time it's probably worth having a conversation with our communities about whether there was a need to formalise a network to distribute not only the work but to share information uh, because there were lots of, you know, incursions biosecurity issues coming up that we knew uh, were either on the table or were imminent and so we secured some money from MB to go test and we spent you know two years on the road uh, testing with our communities this idea of whether we needed a biosecurity network and if so what it would look like. And from that, we established what I said was called Te Tira very much just a Māori biosecurity network. Mm -hmm. And we were advocating and lobbying government at the time to include Māori voices in biosecurity responses, but also to include Ranga Māori in the solutions, so our knowledge systems in the rollout of solutions and responses to biosecurity. And that came on the back in large part of a number of incursions. So Cody Dieback was one where the um, impact was far greater for Māori on the loss of our kauri forests, Mm. um, but Māori weren't really being supported in the response to the disease. Uh, And the disease itself wasn't really being supported in the response from government, in large part because it's a conservation issue Mm. and the biosecurity system sits under MPI, so their interest is most likely uh, and more prevalent in the primary industry space than it is in the conservation space. Mm. So we wanted to be able to fight for a Māori voice, Māori resourcing in that space, and for resourcing in particular to fund Māori solutions to the disease. Um, We were also then lobbying for things like uh, preemptive work around myrtle rust, knowing that this disease was travelling the globe, that it had hit Australia, uh, that it had impacted their species and their myties quite significantly and they were seeing site extinction knowing that we in New Zealand have a lot of muteses, like manuka and kanuka and pohutukawa and that we didn't want to see a loss of those trees on top of kodi you know the kodi trees mm. and so starting to lobby to be preemptive for that um, and then as you start to lobby you start to see the the problems in the system the system that's designed not to include Māori, not to be responsive to the treaty, um, and very much based on a commercial primary industries focus. So Te Tira Whakamātaki kind of developed um, into more than a research project, looking at the academics of what a biosecurity response could look like, uh, but into a bit of an advocate advocate, uh, and, um, and as a voice for Māori in the biosecurity system. And that was housed still at Lincoln University as a research project. And there's obviously some tensions there between a university's role uh, and what Māori communities needed. And so we moved it out of Lincoln, as you'd know. Mm -hmm. uh, And then with your support, turned it into uh, the entities that it is. Mm -hmm. The two entities is the foundation and the um, company. And in in my mind, the foundation is very much about... Um, protecting what we value in the environmental space and so we're much broader than biosecurity now we're about protecting our whenua and our wai uh, and our whole tayo, our environment Mm.
2: uh,
1: and educating our communities to do that um, or them educating others to do that because they have knowledge and systems already it's also about getting resourcing to place so ensuring our communities at place can be resourced to be kaitiaki uh, and and advocating for not only the environment, but for our rights as kaitiaki to protect um, our whenua, to protect our lands and our waterways. The company uh, is really about indigenous solutions, as we say, for a better world. So the focus of the company is to do the research, to create the knowledge that then helps the foundation to roll out on the ground, um, also is you know, as part of creating the income for the foundation to do its education work. Mm. Uh, but it's also, in my mind, really, really um, significant in raising an understanding of how we can work uh, at the nexus between Mata Ranga Māori, or our Indigenous knowledge system, and Western science, and how we can bridge the two when appropriate to come up with unique solutions or fit-for-purpose solutions for our big environmental issues here. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. There's a lot on your plate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just simple little tasks. Yeah. There, that's, yeah. that's all. Um, I'm just curious. You mentioned a, a, a while ago. Now we were talking about colonialism and yeah. just sort of the structures that we operate within. And I'm just curious any reflections that you have on ways that we could improve our structures in in order so that other voices can be heard more easily. Because I think sometimes we, you know, we're kind of fish in the water. We don't realize what we've got maybe isn't as good as it could be. Are there things that could be changed that you can advocate for that that would allow that the, the voices to be heard?
1: Yeah, I don't know if I can advocate for any one thing. Um, what I quite often um, rem, um, ruminate on and uh, talk about is I don't think that our systems in New Zealand are designed for New Zealand and I don't think they're fit for purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have bought systems over from you know, from Britain, or from the UK, and we've embedded them in Aotearoa, New Zealand, thinking that we can, you know, Uh, work within those systems and we also in New Zealand tend to as you may have seen uh, look at systems abroad and go that's exciting we like that in Scandinavia let's bring it over or the Australians are doing that and we'll adopt it Mm -hmm. we're quite often quite teenager like and looking for something better on the other side of the fence Mm -hmm. and bringing other systems into New Zealand and so we don't in my mind have systems that are necessarily fit for purpose or designed for Aotearoa, and when I say that, what I mean is they're not designed to take into consideration the treaty partnership, Uh, and then when we add on to that, the fact that most New Zealanders don't actually understand the treaty and don't have Treaty 101... Uh, knowledge and/or understanding and/or training. We have systems that are very colonial in their nature because they're designed to empower the Crown uh, as an agency to operate on behalf of everyone, and that assumes that one, Maori want the Crown to advocate on its behalf; that two, Maori are part of the Crown; uh, and three, that that's the right system for for New Zealand and what we want to achieve, mm. um, which probably goes to my, you know, to a point that I quite often find. Uh, in the environmental space in particular, is that we don't have a common view of where we're going uh, and we don't have a long-term view of where we're going in the environmental space. So we don't have a 100-year vision for what we want our environment to look like here in New Zealand. And so our systems are kind of going all over the place. If you think in the environmental space, how many agencies look after the environment, uh, and then throw into that uh, regional councils and the not-for-profit sector and communities who are all doing environmental work and we have a large um, system, mm. a lot of money in that system, and it 's all heading in different directions so some may want uh, you know weightability in the water, others may want uh, you know drinkability and because we don 't have a shared agreement of where we 're trying to go we 're quite often uh, cutting across each other's spaces or creating systems that don 't actually uh, work well together. Uh, and there's an inoperability within the systems. And if I think about that when I look at what, say, a Ministry for the Environment might create versus what a Department of Conservation might create and whether those systems actually work very well together. So I don't think we actually are planning long-term which is counter to the Maori worldview where we're planning 100 to 500 years Mm -hmm. out in terms of what we want. So I think the systems in some ways are are ad hoc. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember my father telling me many, many years ago that New Zealand is one of the fastest legislators in the world. So we're also constantly creating new laws and policies and regulations um, to get us somewhere, but without a A clear plan. So I don't think we're very good planners Mm. uh, and the system could benefit from planning better uh, and it would do that if it had a vision, which is very much what we would do in a Māori space. Mm. Um, But we also, like I say, we don't understand our treaty responsibilities. So when we think about the biosecurity system or the conservation system, uh, the view in conservation in particular is that the Crown has the right, the authority to protect the environment. That's a very colonial view about shutting off. Conservation is about closing off lands to protect them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that's not an indigenous view of how we conserve or protect. Um, we don't close off spaces from people. We, you know, we relate to that space, we interact with that space. Um, we also don't believe that the Crown necessarily has that right to do that, that it's their job and their role to protect and conserve. of New Zealand's land mass especially when that 30% of New Zealand's land mass is actually the stuff that's in the most decline Mm. you we've got the greatest biodiversity loss on crown land so the Maori treaty right is actually not being um, taken into consideration and that's often because people don't understand what the treaty actually says
0: Mm.
1: uh, and the rights that it gives Maori yeah
0: Yeah. that's fascinating thank you for Explaining that, because I think in my mind, sometimes colonialism is a word that people use, but in it, it, to me, it's sometimes it's simple to explain it actually. It's the things that you take for granted that this is the way it is and should be without questioning. And I had Colin Merck on a while ago now. And um, as you know, he's a big advocate for, you know, indigenous planting, essentially. And one of his questions that we were talking about was, when you come, you know, new subdivision, what type of tree Mm. will you plant on this road? Will you plant oak trees? Will Mm. you plant maples? Will you plant, but, you know, the list that the councils usually look at, they're kind of from European conceptions of what a street should look like and actually what we need to do is reimagine what the street should look like maybe that 100 year vision you know and say why are we planting trees that have been imported from overseas they're nice trees they're beautiful trees and I understand some of them are good in terms of leaves fall in the winter and there's more light and things so that's cool but shouldn't we also be thinking about having some native trees planted, and Definitely. you know, like, uh, very how things look. But but it's such a ingrained mindset as you know the road is here, and and we always plant this type of tree, yeah. and it's just an assumption. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's yeah, a different it's a different world view, isn't it? You're like you say you're looking at it as a as um, something that you live in not live with
2: Mm.
1: uh, that you just happen to have a house there and drive through the street as opposed to how does the street interact so it's not that holistic view of nature and the environment it's not how do these plants work together what bird life do they attract what insects do they support um, are they fire Retardant, You know, a lot of indigenous plants, you know, are fire retardant. So we're not even thinking like that. We're not thinking about how do we protect houses from changing climate and yeah. increase fires and, and the like, which is very much a holistic view of, you know, of the environment. What is it that we're trying to achieve here? Mm. Um, are we trying to have, you know, forest, um, foraging forests as well? Why can we not have those in the space? So it's not thinking about uh, subdivisions in particular as places that we... Um, grow as communities it's thinking of it as a place where I just lay down and rest my head yeah yeah
0: Yeah. and and then the other simple example is think about the um, the property ownership the way that we look at property and the fact that my name gets written on a piece of paper somewhere that means that I own that land you know like I it's my land yeah it's a very um if you think about it it's 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 not a great concept (laughs) because because it's all about how can i exploit it use it rather than how can i be the guardian of it the steward of it not for me and my own gain but so that it is there for the next generation you know it's kind of but it's it's so inherent within the system i guess that's the point and and sometimes we need to call those things out and start to actually deeply think about it. How do we act? And I loved what you said as well. It's a different topic. The problem with this, is we could talk for hours, I can <laughs> tell. But um, the thing is, you know, if you think about importing ideas from overseas, and the reality is there's so much wisdom and depth of understanding here within to Maudi. And the little book that I've just handed to you, the, yeah. you know, Laying Foundations for Reimagining Business. It's a bunch of essays. But one of the essays, we talk about the fact that rather than looking to Europe or America or other places for conceptions of how we should treat each other within the business world, Mm. that there's actually this amazing wisdom and resource um, not to be exploited or tokenistic or ticking Mm. the box, but once you start talking and actually understanding what manakitanga is actually meaning and what kaitiakitanga is actually meaning then within our very within our own world here in Aotearoa New Zealand there's this amazing wisdom that we have never really drawn on mm. um, w- because from a western perspective it's just been as we describe sort of put aside yeah. so yeah it's an amazing topic
1: Yeah definitely yeah, yeah and i think from a, because from a western view we think about rights and we think about my rights um, what I own and what I can achieve in my lifetime, in my generational
2: yeah.
1: lifetime, and from an Indigenous perspective, we think about obligations. So rights aren't, you know, aren't front of mind. Obligations are. What is my obligation to this place and this space, um, and not for this generation, but for all generations? I think that's probably the huge difference that I've observed. Um, and that's kind of where the conflict lays. and then when you get conflict, you get fear. And so the fear element in New Zealand is that Maori are out to get everything right. um, and that's because that's a Western view. So if we had been um, if we'd been harmed the same way as you know because I am, Pākehā as well. So if I put my Pākehā hat on, if I had been harmed the same way as Māori, I may have a certain reaction that's about reclaiming my rights. Um, I want my land back, I want my house back, I want everything back that I lost. Um, From a Māori perspective, it's not about right, it's about obligation. So um, we're not even talking the same language. So Māori kind of, we don't understand the fear about Māori, about te reo, about our concepts, about our ways to business and our ways to, you know, practising environmentalism. Uh, And and the fear is, um, in our mind, you know, mislay. There shouldn't be fear about what we want or what we're trying to get because we're thinking about our obligation. Mm -hmm. We're thinking that we need uh, our rights honoured because we have an obligation to um, restore the whenua, to restore the quality of our water, Mm -hmm. um, to restore our cultural practice. doesn't mean I want your house. It just means that I want to protect... And so there's already a miscommunication and I think, you know, the system, the colonial system plays on fear and it elevates fears to ensure that there's not a, necessarily this, a balance of rights because this, that whole system's designed to have people in power and those in less so. Mm. And that fear then creates this pushback on Māori views. But you're right, I think once people start to um, open their minds and learn about Māori or indigenous concepts around tanga and manaakitanga, um, kaitiakitanga, then it actually resonates with most people at a soul level, and mm. they kind of go, well, actually, yeah, I get that. I get this desire to be a better, you know, citizen of the world um, mm. to protect the planet, you know? I want to recycle. Mm. I want to reduce waste and I, you know, I want to live in a community that is about supporting each other and building familial relationships and then the fear kind of dissipates but right now we're kind of in this precipice in my mind in New Zealand where there's a lot of fear still, um, it's promoted by certain segments of the community that Māori are out to get stuff and to take rights um, that it's a backward culture and that there's not much to learn from it um and then we you know for once, we also have a counter group that are going, well, actually it's not that scary, like Maori have been handed back the Odaweda and they got the rivers back, and the world didn't end mm. uh they didn't block the beaches and stop people going out to sea, so yeah, I think we're kind of at a at a better space than we were say ten years ago, where it would have all been fair
0: mm. yeah, I agree, and uh, each of these essays um I could have said. I feel like I'm on the right side of history in writing this because (laughs) I think when in generations to come, when they look back, I think people will realize, hopefully, (laughs) that was the dawning of, you know, a new way of thinking. Because what I see, you know, this is super boring for anyone, but legal systems, like if we could actually come up with a new way of organizing ourselves within similar to a company structure, Mm -hmm. but... A, adopting um, many of these principles that we're talking about that is intergenerational in its mm-hmm. thinking, then we could be world leading and develop it here, you know, an authentic way of being. And I think that's what's really fascinating to me is what it could be. And for me, just riffing off what you're saying, I've got young children, and I've realized recently that from a Western conception, we all like to think that we we are the star of the movie. You know, (laughs) we're the star of the movie, whatever it is. This is Stephen's journey, and what I've realized more and more is that I'm just a a part-time actor in the lives of my children's journey. You know, (laughs) and my job is not so much about me it 's about how can I prepare the way for them that they can then come up and in turn prepare the way for the next so it's just that different way of looking at things sure, I think yeah. that that um, sometimes we've gotten a little gotten it around the wrong way mm. Definitely, yeah yeah well, that's great well i'd love to find out a little bit about seeds and um Indigenous knowledge and things so could we turn the conversation there because yes. I I know that topic we could go on forever um, but tell us about seed banks and tell us about conversations you're having with other people around the world yeah what what are we talking about
1: yeah well so I guess my um my love for seeds and seed banks comes in large part out of the middle rust response so preparing for that incursion into Altiero New Zealand meant that we were thinking quite um, early on about in our journey of Te o about what it would mean to preserve seeds in case we got extinctions at place. So right. in case a, a disease hit the shores that wiped out a whole stand of a forest uh, and we wanted to preserve the genetics from there. Mm. So we started thinking about seed banking. And what that would look like from an indigenous viewpoint, especially around the sovereignty of the seeds. So we obviously knew how we how we collect seeds, um, and we knew what we would kind of do, like lots of people do when they garden. They put their seeds in, you know, in their garage over. Uh, over the year. Um, But we were thinking more about where do you send them, Um, if you send them to a seed bank, how do they house them, what does that look like, what are the protocols around it, do we have access to them. Uh, And then, of course, as I said, middle rust hit, and we had to move at pace. And what we found in the biosecurity response was, as you were talking about systems before, is the biosecurity system is really, really big, um, and it moves at pace, and it's really powerful. And it was one of the reasons we focused on biosecurity was that uh, a lot of people didn't understand how powerful the system was when a response was uh, underway. So if you think of a you know a disease like foot and mouth hitting our shores, the of course the Crown wants to be able to move really fast to eliminate a disease like COVID mm. uh, and they want to have all the powers in the world to do that. And when Middle Rust hit they you know they rolled out their biosecurity powers, moved into place Uh, started pulling out plants that were infected, disposing of them. They have every right to walk onto your property and remove anything they want. Most uh, South Aucklanders know that because they constantly have fruit fly incursions. Uh, But they also then have the power to mandate other organisations to do work. And they mandated Department of Conservation to seed collect and they did collect seeds, as uh, they were asked to, mm. of um, particular plants. And they did so in what we would say was a culturally inappropriate way. So they did so in sites that were wahitapu, so sacred. Uh, they did in places where we our knowledge would say they, those plants weren't the best plants to harvest from seeds from. They weren't the mother tree, for example. Um, they were the genetically weaker ones because our stories you know, would tell us where the more superior plants were. Uh, And then they banked them in the New Zealand Indigenous Flora and Fauna Seed Bank. uh, And the protocols around that seed bank, we would also argue, were culturally inappropriate. Mm. Um, They operate under a standard black box policy like most seed banks where he who deposits is the owner and the only one that can extract. So even if they've taken seeds from your land and deposited another agency, then owns those seeds. We have uh, Māori had no rights to those. And so that piqued my curiosity in seeds, uh, not only for the seeds themselves and the ability to protect our, our taonga in long term, but also because I love dismantling systems. I have, like you, an interest in systems mm. uh, and how we can break them down and, and you know then build them back up in better ways. And so for me, I got quite fascinated in the seed conservation system. Um, you know, Who are the power players, uh, um, not only here in New Zealand, but around the world, Uh, how could you infiltrate that system uh, and how could you work within it to make it more culturally responsive and appropriate and as the incursion was ongoing uh, and we were trying to as Maori get a role in a space to have our voice heard and how we wanted seed conservation to be carried out um, we were already kind of in conversations with Kew Gardens and the Millennium Seed Bank in the UK but they reached out to us during the middle response and said look you know, we can help you if you want. Um, we've offered the New Zealand government help, and they declined. Um, but you know, let us know if there's a way we can help. And so, yes, it's kind of ironic that the that the real Crown and Kew Gardens reached out to <laughs> to Māori to help uh, mm-hmm. when our own government wouldn't. But we got into yeah you know, we entered a relationship with Kew Gardens and the Millennium Seed Bank in particular, and they rolled out or they delivered to us what we call seed drum kits that allow our communities to collect at place and to store better than just how we would store our, gu- our veggie seeds in the garage but to store right. properly at place and they call those emergency seed drums so it's for emergency situations like a flood or a drought or an incursion and so we started rolling those out to our communities um, we were running training on how to use them and uh, the Kew Gardens sent over people to train our communities. Mm -hmm. And I guess from there it just kind of grew into a bit of a movement around what does seed conservation look like from a Māori perspective from us. And right now it looks like storing it place uh, in our own, in our marae in our communities so that we don't have to send offshore or to a big national seed bank where we're unsure about the protocols or how we would get access to those seeds if we needed them. Uh, and in the future hopefully it looks like a Māori-owned seed bank uh, and hopefully in collaboration with others if we can because we know it's going to be a costly experiment Um, but that comes from uh, our conversations with other Indigenous communities offshore as well and some of the issues they have with their seed banks uh, and their seed communities but the seed bank community more generally and its um, focus on commercial species uh, and its focus on, I guess, government's government ownership rather than indigenous practices and indigenous ownership mm.
0: yeah yeah that's fascinating well it'll be good to watch this space yeah. and we'll see what develops because <laughs> i think it it's an amazing thing i mean the taonga the the treasure that that is the natural world you know it's something that once it's gone it's gone right you, yeah and if you don't preserve or if you don't have a way to safeguard the future then Things could be lost. So. Definitely,
1: yeah, and we need ge- genetic diversity as well. Mm. And quite often, and I mean, we can understand genetic diversity mm. via a lab. So we can take a whole bunch of seeds to a lab and uh, and you know check them for diversity and resistance to different diseases and pests. Um, but we can also just talk to communities who have lived at place for thousands of years mm-hmm. and ask them about genetic diversity because they have watched the forests grow and they have knowledge of how the forests have changed and it's a much faster way in my mind of understanding diversity within our forests and that's equally as important as just having seeds stored, as having the diversity of seeds, uh, seeds within a species stored. Mm-hmm. Um, because climate change is just such a variable that we don't know what other diseases we'll have, where pests will move around the world um, and what may what sleeper pests or diseases we may wake up, you know, mm. um, as our climate changes. So that diversity is is you know far more important now as well to mm. get resistance to you know pests and diseases.
0: Yeah, oh that's great. Well, we'll have to um, do another episode maybe in two years. Maybe by then you'll have your. Um have it all set up yeah. and come on a tour and That's see right. it. <laughs> that would be amazing. Well, Melanie, thank you so much for your time. I really it's appreciate, right. um, you know, you're very busy and I appreciate that you'd come on and, and share with the listeners a bit of your life and your story. And I love hearing people's whole lives because if you look back and think about, you know, Oman and you're 11 years old and in a new culture and, and think of how that then has influenced, you know, different parts of your life but also the way that um, Te Al clearly had a big impression from an early age, you know, from year nine, really getting into it. And now look at what you're doing today. And I love that there's a connection through life. Um, so, yeah, it's been really interesting to hear your story and lots of challenging thoughts there as well. So thank you for coming on the show.
1: That's all right. Kia ora. Well,
0: I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Melanie. As you could tell, we talked about a wide range of topics, If you enjoyed this and this style of interview, then why not check out some of the others in the back catalog? And there's heaps more information at theseeds.nz. Until next time!